0: Welcome, everyone, to Kids A to Z with Dr. T. I'm your host, Teresa Signorelli, and we are bringing you information about the five areas of child development, and that is physical, intellectual, social, emotional, emotional, and moral, so parents can empower their children to thrive. Well, today we have an all-star playroom segment, and it's called Smart First Steps for Parents of Children Born with Disabilities, An advocate's perspective. And we are going to be informing parents about steps they can take and resources that exist if their child is born with some type of disability. And we have two guests um, who are attorneys uh, for Lewis Joe's here in New York City, where I'm broadcasting from, and actually they are too. (laughs) And that is Eileen Labouti and Jennifer Francola. So, ladies, welcome. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Hi, (laughs) Teresa. How are you?
0: Okay, hi. So why don't we do this? Why don't we start with Eileen? Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do?
2: So, Teresa, Lewis-Joes is a law firm that's been around for over 20 years. We do a lot of litigation in different areas, and about five years ago, Jennifer and I founded the education group for Lewis-Joes with a deep background in litigation and trial practice, we took our expertise dealing with the courts and experts and writing briefs, and we've taken it to help families and students to advocate and, if necessary, sue a public school or the Department of Education in order to get students and their families the services, the programs, and the educational Services that they're entitled to under a law called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And my background is I have been with Lewis Joe's for over 20 years. I used to be a medical malpractice trial attorney exclusively, and I used to defend doctors and hospitals in jury trials. And I've taken that background to now help me in trying cases against the Department of Education. Jennifer. Is an attorney as well. She has a unique uh, background in that she was a public school teacher actually working in the public schools in the Department of Education. She has navigated the maze of the public school system in New York City. And her teaching experience, coupled with her deep knowledge of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, enables her to help clients not only find appropriate schools for their students and whatever services are necessary in order to enable the student to make progress and access education. But also her depth in the law enables her to assist in fighting for those services when the Department of Education or the public school
0: fails to provide what's appropriate. Okay. And so one of the things I think is also key is, I mean you're a mom, right? I am. I have nine-year-old twins.
2: Uh, both of whom had have had services through the Department of Health and the Department of Education at one time or another. Uh, that's, in fact, uh, not how Jennifer and I met, but that's how we started. The first student that uh, Jen and I advocated for together was my son, and I did it exclusively as a mom. I was an attorney for many years, when my kids were born, and this may jump ahead to some topics that we were going to cover, but when Mm -hmm. my son was born and needed speech services or occupational therapy services, I didn't know that there was a law that provided for students to get what was necessary for them. When I heard of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act Act, I pictured a wheelchair or crutches. I didn't realize that learning disabilities would qualify a student for the protections that are provided for in the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And Jen helped me navigate those waters as a parent. I know as a parent it could be a very scary thing when you learn that your baby, infant, toddler needs Speech therapy, occupational therapy, or more intensive therapies, our inclination is to look for a physician or a healthcare provider, an evaluator, to rule out that our child needs these services. And one of the things I learned by going through the process for myself is instead of looking to rule out that your child needs services, embrace the fact that you are able to have. An evaluator tell you what your child needs, and get those services as early as you can because those early interventions, whether it's through the Department of Health and Early Intervention, or through uh, CPSE or CSE, which is preschool um, special education or regular um, three through right, twenty-one so the, education, mm-hmm. embrace that. Use your evaluators who say that your student needs uh, programs or services to get the appropriate services. Instead of looking for someone to say your child is fine, really figure out what your child needs and advocate for it because the earlier you do
0: that, the better your child will be. Yeah, that, that's so true. Earlier is always better. And I th- and we'll be talking, we, we had mentioned some, Fancy acronyms, CPSD and CSC. We're going to talk about those a little bit more in depth so parents, um, if they don't know, will have a better idea of what that means. Um, but what I think about both of you in terms of your uh, your bios is Eileen, you with just your tremendous law experience and your experience as a mother who's also had to navigate the system with children who had some disabilities on some level. And Jen's background of being a school teacher and understanding the educational system and the complexities there, um, that especially you two together as a team is really nice. And the other thing you said that really resonated with me, that you as an attorney um, didn't realize that the the um, individuals, the IDEA, that Individuals with Disabilities Education Act could apply to your child. So, what i found across my practice as a speech language pathologist the last 20 something years is that there's a lot of information that um parents don't have and that's really a big premise of the show is bringing them this information so let's talk a little bit more about um i guess some resources and and maybe clarify some terms so we all know that when you have a child it's it's a major life milestone and even under the best of circumstances, it can be quite overwhelming, Um, even if you have that support system and lots of financial resources and a baby that is healthy. Um, So what we're going to talk about today is steps parents should consider and resources that would be good for them to know about if their child is born with some type of disability. Now, I think before we start, it might be smart for us to clear up, too, um, the different ways children might be disabled. So it could just be that they are born with some kind of disability, second to natural, essentially natural developmental reasons, um, maybe some genetic reasons or um, just things that happen spontaneously. Perhaps they've got, for example, Down syndrome or they might be born blind or deaf. or There could be a range of conditions that just occur arguably naturally. That's one way. And then another way is that they can become disabled because of some accident, either before birth or maybe during or right after birth, um, second to someone's negligence. So um, it could be, especially in the case of negligence, that there might be some legal ramifications. But I want to hold that talk till to, uh, till a little bit later on and just talk about, in general, what parents can do um, to get the habilitative or those therapeutic services that um, their child would need so that they can grow physically, intellectually, social, emotionally, and more. Um, So let's start by talking about what you wish as uh, professionals. What do you wish parents knew more about? So maybe, Jen, why don't we start with you for this question?
1: Okay, thank you. You know, I think whether you're a newly minted or a repeat parent, as you welcome each child into this world, they bring with them such a whole host of amazing gifts and challenges, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Some children bring with them special needs, and by virtue of that, you now become a special needs parent. While there are many books out there to read about, you know, what to expect when you're expecting or what to expect in the first year, etc., there aren't too many books to prepare you for a child with special needs. Most parents, even if they are themselves, rely on expert opinions of doctors, educators, experts, people who will help them plan a medical or educational path for their child. Once you find out your child may have special needs, whether you can tell from their first breath or whether it takes a few years to discover, you really want to think about identifying and meeting with these doctors and experts in the area of your child's disabilities. In some cases, you may need to find a lawyer to help you navigate these endless acronyms and administrative processes and paperwork related to the process. This may help parents plan and make choices for their family and their children the best way they can you know whether it be for medical care, schooling, therapies, parent training, sometimes you need to think about guardianship, special needs trusts or a variety of other choices. You know, I I really want parents to know, you know, hook up with these experts and doctors as early as possible. Get evaluations mm-hmm. and seek specific recommendations for them. You know, that said, while it's important to plan, it's really important and equally and and equally important to remain flexible and present in the moment, cherishing your time with your little one as he or she grows up. Right, right. So, Doctor um, T, one I thing mean, you just sure
2: you just mentioned about what you wish parents knew. Yeah. While the internet can be an extraordinary resource, I think that it also can be overwhelming for parents. And mm-hmm. if you suspect that your child has autism and you Google autism, many of the things that you'll find are not necessarily true or sometimes it's looking at the, the worst potential outcomes. And if a parent isn't guided by what they're researching, what they're looking at, where are they getting the information from, they could be getting erroneous information that can cause unnecessary anxiety, aggravation, fear. So one thing that I wish parents knew was don't just hear a potential diagnosis and Google yourself to death. It could be very, very scary. Oftentimes you'll find that, students with autism the 80% of the time parents get divorced that's one erroneous statistic that i've found or their siblings uh are suicidal like horrible statistics that just aren't true so i wish parents right. knew where to go for information as opposed to just getting on the Internet, finding a search engine, and getting information that's going to put them on a path of anxiety and unnecessary worry as opposed to taking it step-by-step, as Jen said, to be in the moment, remain flexible, but also assemble your team of professionals that can help you step-by-step navigate this road.
0: Right. And and that's a big um, mission for our talk today. So um, let's first talk about, um, I guess, the kids earlier in that that growth trajectory. So as we were mentioning, parents might not realize the certain rights that they have and that we actually have laws and services in, in some form for children really from birth through their 21st birthday. And so we'll first talk about um the resources for children birth to three because depending on their age um it's gonna dictate where parents could and should go to find information and resources. So let's again talk about that birth to three year range. What can you um all tell us about that? Maybe I Eileen, mean, can you start with that one? Sure. So Dr. T, in that zero to three range, oftentimes parents
2: are going to their regular checkups with the pediatrician, and you're not really sure what to expect. So one thing I would say is keep a log of what your baby is doing, when they're eating, when they're they're going to the bathroom, when you're changing their diapers, so that you have a log of information to bring to the doctor. If it's not a disability that's readily um, ascertainable in the hospital, if you're sent home with your baby, things seem good and then your baby is not able to suck, failing to thrive, lethargic. If there are things that, you know, everyone's read the book, What to Expect, as Jen mentioned, if there are things that seem outside of the ordinary, call your pediatrician immediately. Having facts to give the pediatrician about what's going on in the day, how many times your baby wets, those are also important things. But someone told me early on that, if you suspect something with your child that, you know, oftentimes pediatricians see such a small window of your child. So if you suspect autism or some sort of other disability, call early intervention. You could look at your local Yellow Pages or go on the Internet, look under, just quote early intervention in your uh, city or in your, Town, The town that you live in, it's under the Department of Health. And someone told me, get yourself an early intervention evaluation or set of evaluations, and it's the best free $10,000 evaluation you'll ever get. And what they mean is yep. you will get free evaluations regarding your baby, whatever area it, it is. It could be psychological. They'll do a family assessment, But call early intervention, tell them what you suspect, and ask for a full evaluation. They are obligated by law to give you that evaluation. They will come to your home. You will get a service provider assigned to you. One uh, asterisk I'll give to that is some service providers are excellent, they are motivated, they are helpful, they are kind. Some service providers are overwhelmed and won't return your calls and won't know the access to services, the list of service providers. So, you are your baby's best advocate. If you're not happy with the service provider that you have, if they're not getting back to you, either get your service provider switched or use that service provider through the Department of Health to get you the information you need so you can find out what you need to do. So, for example, if your service provider says you need to find uh, a group of professionals that do speech or a group of professional that provide uh, ABA services, applied behavioral analysis therapy for your child, and they say they can't find one, get the list of service providers. Say, oh, would you mind sharing with me the list? Maybe I can get to yes if I make some phone calls. And get the list. If they don't have a list of providers, get the list of evaluators. Get the names and numbers and start calling yourself if you're not getting to yes with your service provider. Some of these providers are overwhelmed with people at certain times of year. So if you... Through early intervention, if you're able to get your child a certain number of therapies a week, maybe you find a provider that can't help you or that's booked up, ask that provider, who can I call? Do you have a friend that does this type of work? Or if you get 10 hours of therapy on the family service plan that you get through early intervention. So basically, you go through early intervention, you have these evaluations done, you'll have a meeting, to set up and fight for whatever services these providers say your baby needs. And if there's no service provider to provide the services, you be the one to find them. And you do it through your service provider, um, through the Internet, through the evaluators, get the name and contact information for every one of these evaluators that comes to your home and they do come to your Mm -hmm. home. And if all of these people say your baby is fine and you don't need any services, then I would recommend a private evaluation in your suspected area of disability. If those providers say that your baby does need intervention, you know for sure that your baby does because these people really try not to give services. So if they say you need it, get it.
0: Yeah, and actually, that's an interesting point that I wanted to comment on. Um, There's a difference between needing services and um, being eligible for services. So there's a bar at which um, children have to meet to get services. They have to have a certain degree of delay or disability for early intervention to provide services. So that could be the case. They might have a delay or disorder, but not be enough to get services. That's another case where I think going to a private practitioner can well, be very helpful.
2: In the early intervention arena, you need to be have a 33% delay in one area or 25% delay in two or more. So for an evaluator to make that prediction of what percentage it is, isn't necessarily an exact science. And so that's something also that as a parent, remember when you're speaking to the evaluator, parents tend to want to brag about their babies. Parents tend to want to know that everything is fine. So if an evaluator comes to your house and you talk about all the wonderful things your baby does, that's great, but that's not gonna give them an exact picture of what the baby's challenges are. So, and sometimes you might not know. Maybe the evaluator will come to your home and ask you certain questions. Does your baby give you eye contact when someone new walks into the room? Does your baby notice? Does your baby look up and see that there's a stranger in the in the apartment or in the home? You might not know the answers to this. And if you don't at the time, tell them, "I'm not really sure. I'm going to observe that and call you back." Because Sometimes just the fact that an evaluator is asking you those questions is going to give you an idea of what to look for. And maybe in the coming days you'll realize, hey, a stranger walked into my apartment and my 2-year-old
0: didn't even notice. That might be a sign. Right. Right, okay. So, um, thank you, Eileen. Jen, is there anything that you'd like to contribute regarding regard to those services, those early intervention services for children birth to three years?
1: Um, o- only that um, that particular education plan is what Eileen mentioned. It's called an Individualized Family Service Plan, otherwise known as IFSP. You know, once you enter into the world of special education and special needs, you're going to be surrounded by a ton of acronyms. So um, there's a particular law that, um, that covers early intervention. And then once a child ages out of early intervention, um, an entirely different legal standard and an entirely different set of services applies. You know, your baby still may require the same services and interventions that they did through early intervention or EI, but then they age out and they um, start the process for preschool. And under that, um, it's basically the decisions are made by the Committee on Preschool Education, otherwise known as the CPSE, and that's no longer part of the Department of Health, but that's now part of the Department of Education. I think what's really important is as you're exiting out of early intervention and as you're aging out of early intervention, if your baby's aging out of early intervention, you really want to have um, a, a whole host of evaluations that are very specific in their recommendations and are strong enough to support either um, a, a, con- a continuation or um, an increase of services as your child ages into preschool.
2: I, Dr. Okay. T, I just want to add to yeah. Jen's point. Again, I I don't mean to reiterate, but this is so important. Parents, mm-hmm. no reiteration's good. <laughs> parents' instincts are to evaluate. Tell You know, tell the evaluator all the great progress that the child has made and say, see, the evaluator says my child is fine and we don't need to do this anymore. But really look at your child, look at what the milestones should be, look at the indicators, and tell those evaluators what your child isn't doing. They can't see your child over the course of 24-7 like you do. So instead of having the goal be, oh, we don't need this anymore, make sure you're really looking at your child's challenges because it's very difficult to get services back once they're discontinued. And so often I've seen either parents through my practice or friends, family members that really just want their child to be okay and they tell the evaluator all the wonderful things the child can do, and never point out the challenges that the child is having, the fact that the child is staring at all the striped towels to the point where they're distracted by them. That may mean that the child is stimming what we call stimming they're they're distracted by the look of the stripes, and if you're not looking for these challenges, if your child is flapping their hands or walking on their toes when they're excited, it might be cute when they're 18 months old, but when they're four doing the same thing, you're going to realize that this is no longer going to be cute. The other children, other parents are going to see that this is not a typical behavior, so... Look for these signs. Don't look to get rid of the services if your child needs them. You know, it's almost like you feel like if the evaluator says your child doesn't need services anymore, like you got a great report card. But are you doing right by your child and you're your child's really best advocate?
0: Right. And and the one other thing I think I'd probably add about this early intervention, this birth to three-year age range, is that early and intervene and getting intervention early the earlier you get help his, uh, generally speaking the earlier you get help the less help you need over time you can mitigate or lessen any problems um by getting that early help and um and being honest and forthright and describing your child um, how the, how they're functioning day to day because that evaluator yes in that one hour half hour 45 minute whatever amount of time they're with your child and they're just checking some boxes, that really doesn't give a good picture of how they can function. And and we want them to thrive. We want them to be successful. So the earlier we get help and the getting them the right help, the better off they're going to be down the line and, and need it less as they as they grow. And we started talking a little bit about that um aging out and after they're three. So let's talk about the services um that are covered for that three to twenty one year age range. Um where do parents access services for their children in in these years? So, so maybe t- um uh, maybe Jen, you could can um start with this question and then we'll go sure. to Eileen.
1: Sure, thanks. Um you know for children ages three to four years old, typically they access services through their local educational agency, otherwise known as their school district. Here in New York City, um parents would have to contact the New York City Department of Education, whichever school district that they're in. Um, Outside of New York City and um, outside of, you know, other major cities when you're in the suburbs and when you're in rural communities, you really want to contact your local school district. And um, for this particular age, it's considered um, access through the Committee on Preschool Education, or like I said before, the CPSA. the Committee on Preschool Education may conduct their own evaluations. They may call you in for a meeting. Um, I recommend to all my clients bring your EI evaluations and progress reports to the Committee on Preschool Education. You know this is probably the first time that this group of people is meeting your child and meeting you. So you want to provide with that provide them with the most information as possible from your child's early years so that they can, you know, attempt to accurately prepare an educational plan for your child in preschool. Um, If you have any disagreement with the recommendations that they make, you can go ahead also at this time and seek a private evaluation as well and share that with the committee. Um, You absolutely always have the right at this time to call a meeting and meet with the committee um, in case you want to modify or change or um, reevaluate the recommendations on their uh, on their IEP, and you know I say IEP, an IEP stands for an Individualized Education Plan. This is the first time that your child will be placed on one. Um, it's a little bit different than the ISSP that you receive in early intervention mostly because uh, these services are to take place during the school day. Sometimes uh, children can receive what's called a dual recommendation, in which case they get services during the preschool day as well as um, after school or at-home services. Uh, I've noticed in my practice that, you know, the Committee on Special Education doesn't dole those out very easily. And um, typically parents who receive those dual recommendations or after school services for their for their child um, come in with very specific recommendations on their evaluations. So I, I, I can't stress that enough.
0: Right. And I think another thing with that IFSP and EI, that family plan, you're real the services are really looking at the child in the full context of the family and helping in many globally, uh, so to speak, and then when you get to the individualized education plan in the school system, the therapy is really tied to the curriculum, um, so to I think that's a big part of why. It, I think the mm-hmm. therapies are tied to the curriculum and also
2: the student's ability to access education, so for mm-hmm. example, in early intervention, they may provide uh, training or services to the child to help them get along at the supermarket. Like, literally, that could be a program that you're targeting behaviors in the supermarket. And when you hit CPSC, they're really focused on assisting that student to access education. And I also wanted to add, when Jen talks about that CPSC meeting, and she says it's so important, that meeting is really setting the stage. As Jen said, it's the first time that that local educational agency is getting to meet the family, meet the student. If you've had a special education itinerant teacher working with your child at home for a year or however long, and they believe that your child continues to need services, whether it's 20 hours of ABA therapy, whether it's a teacher to... Be one-on-one with the student in school, let that teacher who you have you as a parent has developed a rapport with, let that person come to your meeting with you. They may be a very great uh, advocate for you and for your child because they're in a position to know your child better than anyone at that meeting. They've been working with your child, and they are presumably one of the people employed by the educational agencies because their agency probably works for early intervention and may also work for uh, the Department of Education or one of these public school agencies. So here you have someone that may be considered independent, not someone that you've hired, but actually someone that's been hired through early intervention or hired uh, through CPSE that works with your student and their input at a meeting could really, really help in accessing appropriate services for your student.
0: Okay. You know, I want to recap just a little bit and just um, maybe walk through the process chronologically. Um, And We've basically done that. um, So if there's anything you wanted to add that was new, but um, let's say the parents are with their newborn and the newborn is diagnosed with a disability. So the first thing... You'd, um, we would want them to do is access services through early intervention, right? And and then what? Or what could you add? So they're going to call intervention, early intervention. They're
2: going to access that number through the yellow pages or the Internet. They can look up literally just, quote, early intervention. It will come under the Department of Health. There will be a number to call. It will probably ex- be accessible in Spanish and in English and you just tell them that you suspect that your child is having a problem and you want an evaluation. You don't even have to know. Like a speech evaluation at that age, your child may not be speaking, but maybe their eye contact isn't uh, what you would hope it would be. Maybe your child isn't responding to his name or her name. These are things that you could tell early intervention and say, I'm worried, uh I notice that my child isn't developing the way I would expect. I want a complete and full evaluation. You can get evaluations in speech, in occupational therapy. That could both be for fine motor skills and also for sensory issues. You can also get a physical therapy evaluation. They can also do a psychological evaluation even at that young age. So the first thing to do would be to call and get those evaluations set up, those evaluators will come to your home. Get those evaluations back as quickly as possible. Ask the evaluator to send you a copy, not just to send it to the agency. If you can get them to send you a copy, and again, get the contact information for each one of these people so the next week, when you haven't heard from anyone, you can call them and say, hey, can I get my evaluation, please? I'm worried about my son or daughter, and I want to go to a meeting so we can assess whether they need any services or not. Then, yeah, I, after I,
0: that, oh, after that, you schedule that meeting. Okay, and I think um, you you brought up a good point. Um, you know, why would a one-year-old or a six-month-old need a speech evaluation? So. I'm the speech language pathologist, so what I find parents often don't know is how early speech and language skills begin, and we're really talking about communication skills and learning skills. And so, and I knowing and working with OTs, occupational therapists, and physical therapists, and psychologists, um, all these areas of development start very early, often actually in utero before the children are born. So out of the gate, there are behaviors that we're looking for, for children to be doing. Um, so any of those professionals could be looking at your day-old child um, and be able to tell you things about how they're developing. Um, so that was important. And I, um, Jen, just to bring you in a second, I know you and I had mentioned things in the past um, something like a developmental pediatrician, I don't know at what point a parent should consider that relative to a regular pediatrician, or what what can you say in that regard?
1: Right. I think that's, you know, part of building your team of experts. You know, you're not alone in this. And um, I find that, you know, pediatricians are great, and I think that every family absolutely must have one. I feel that developmental pediatricians um, kind of have a special skill set, if you will, and look for and test for um, things that maybe um, a general pedi- pediatrician may not have that skill set for. So if you do have a child with developmental needs and you're noticing things, and um, it might be a good idea to hook up with that developmental pediatrician early on. Um, later on down the road, if you want to have different types of um, educational or psychological testing done that... Um, really digs deep and will assess learning disabilities and um, plan for uh, a variety of different educational plans for your kid. A neuropsychologist could be a really helpful uh, Mm -hmm. doctor to get in touch with for those types of testing. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I think um, part of also one of the reasons um, we started the show was because Um, there are all these specialists in all these different areas of development that parents might not know about. And the pediatricians are on the front line and they know a lot, uh, but they're medical doctors. Their expertise isn't in sensory development or language development or speech development or gross motor development. Uh, So that's why I think the idea of Also consulting with a developmental pediatrician could be helpful because they can start to see things and then be able to refer the family to the professional who really is the specialist in a given area of um, development. Um, So let's talk a little bit now about a child that has a disability because of some accident that might be the cause of someone's negligence. Uh, We haven't talked about that yet. So what, what should parents know about that? There are many things that can happen
2: um, either as a result of trauma, something that happens in utero as a result of trauma, or maybe something that just happens not necessarily genetically, but congenitally when the baby is in utero that may be someone else's fault and may not be someone else's fault. But a parent may not know the first thing, is to get the medical help that you need as soon as possible. In New York, the statute of limitations uh, doesn't run for injury to an infant at birth or in in utero for 10 years. So you have time to worry about the legal side of the case. And the fact that an incident was as a result of someone's negligence wouldn't change what we're saying. So you still do the same things that we're talking about to take care of your infant, child, toddler. And if you suspect that it was because of someone's negligence, you have time to take a look at that. So if you think that it's something that happened during your hospital stay, certainly you can request a complete copy of your records. You're entitled to that. I think by law, they're able to charge you up to 75 cents a page for a complete copy of your medical record. So you may want to get a copy of your records as soon as possible. But you don't have to be concerned that your time is going to run so quickly. You're going to have time to look at that. And that's another thing that you would rely on your medical professionals about. You know, is this something that can happen as a result of a birth injury, as a result of a trauma. I was in a car accident, you know, the month before I delivered, for example. Is this Mm -hmm. something that could have resulted from that? But nothing that we're saying with relation to early intervention or with relation to accessing these educational services, nothing's going to change just because you think it may have been as a result of someone's, negligence.
0: Okay. Okay. That you can and still then, pursue that. Right. And and I guess the other big takeaway is that the statute of limitations, and I guess that's New York State is probably similar in other states, but parents should probably find that out. Um that statute of limitations is ten years. So um I guess before your your child's tenth birthday, um you should act if you're if you have a concern in that regard. Exactly. Okay. So, um, now, we've talked about children from birth who've had um, some kind of disability that you were pretty much aware of, but sometimes we don't notice uh, right away, and it it takes until a child gets to school, Uh, like maybe they're in second grade or something, um, and they're having trouble learning, and they've had no previous evaluations or diagnosis or, or even big troubles before from what we saw, but now they've been in school, maybe they're acting out, maybe they're misbehaving in some way or they're overly active or perhaps they have trouble attending. And especially as school and learning becomes more complicated and more taxing and children learn to read, maybe we see trouble with their reading ability. So, um, or maybe just in general, the child just not doing well. And There's a couple of years where they're just really not performing well um, what can parents do in that regard? What can we talk about there? So the first
2: thing I would say is if you suspect a problem, get an evaluation. And an easy way to get an initial evaluation is to write a letter to your principal, to the Committee on Special Education for your school, to both send it by fax or do certified return requests. I know it sounds silly, but if you don't have evidence that you requested it on a certain day, it may take forever to get that evaluation done. So request that evaluation and let the school district evaluate your student for the suspected area of issue. If it's attention, if it's reading, if it's Johnny's having such trouble Writing down his homework assignments, get an evaluation. We've had so many cases, especially in the suburban schools, where a parent goes to a principal and says, "I'm really worried about Johnny. Johnny's having trouble at school, he's crying every day he he's getting frustrated doing his homework and the principal will say, OK, we'll take a look. And we'll get a phone call from the the parent or whoever it is and say, write a letter, send it by fax, send it return receipt, and request of an evaluation. And the parent will do that. And then they'll get a phone call from the principal. Let us get to know Johnny. Johnny's new in the school. Withdraw your letter, because otherwise he might lose the services and the things we're providing already and let us wait and see. And our advice is don't wait and see. That has never turned out to be what was best for the student. It's usually the school that is looking to buy time. And waiting and seeing has not been, in our opinion, the best way to deal with these disabilities. So request an evaluation. Do it by fax. Do it by return receipt uh, letter. If you have um, access and can afford a private evaluation, by all means, get a private evaluation in your suspected area of disability. Request that the Committee on Special Education meet to discuss the results of whether it's the school's evaluation or your own evaluation. And then you have to think of what are you looking for. Are you looking for... Tutoring—you may not even know what you're looking for—but one thing I can tell you is that you will need a private evaluation to find out.
0: Okay. okay. So, and so to a couple of things. Oh, Jen, let me just—there uh, are a few things sure. that resonated with me. So if you can hold for a second, so um, I'm hearing you should really document everything. Get a big folder or a couple of folders, <laughs> and keep those return receipts. Keep those faxes. Um, keep reports. Um, is Make one a thing, location. and then. If you
2: have a conversation with the teacher, if you have a conversation with the principal, if you're requesting evaluations, just get a composition notebook and write down the date, write down who Mm -hmm. you spoke to, write down the sum and substance of the conversation. It will help you as you walk this path to access education for your student. And also, in the event that this does have to go to litigation, it will help you refresh your recollection as to what happened.
0: Mm, that's really smart. Um, the one other thing I wanted to clarify, I'm not sure if we did, we are using a new term now, CSE, uh, which stands for Committee um, on Special Education. Before, when the children are three to five, it's C P S E, which is Committee on Preschool Special Education. So I just wanted to note that. And then, um, Eileen, if, if you had anything, or Jen, if you wanted to jump in with some comments, that would be great, too.
1: Right. So I just wanted to touch upon that. Um, you know, once, once a child is school age, that's typically, you know, ages 5 till 21, right? The Individuals with Disability and Education Act really protects kids who are in preschool and then also um, children the ages, ages 5 to 21. So when your child turns 5, um, you can access similar services, but it's going to be through your school district and your school district's committee on special education. That's sep- typically separate and apart from the preschool special- committee on preschool special education. Um, and, again, you know, I often find that where kids um, approach their turning five meeting, there's this chipping away at services. It's not that the child doesn't need them anymore, it's just that you know, oftentimes school districts will apply a different standard, and so they may say either we don't do, provide that kind of service or your child doesn't need that kind of service. You know, you really want to be a, a fierce advocate for your kid um, at that turning five meeting to either maintain or increase services um, if they still need it. You know, you were talking about um, maybe discovering that a child is struggling later on down the road. and I recently had a case with um, a friend of mine on this where she noticed her little girl was, um, you know, reversing her letters and not writing as well and really struggling. And, you know, this is a very smart girl. She just had difficulty, um, you know, accessing the, you know, accessing her education because she was struggling in school with her reading and writing. So I told mom, I said, you know, listen, you need to write to the school district Um, request the evaluations, which she did, and it came back that um, she did in fact have dyslexia. So the school at that time didn't have um, a particular program to address dyslexia, and so right now the parent is working with the school district to develop that kind of plan. She's also looking outside of her school district um, to see if there are any private programs that may be able to address that deficit um, in her child. But, um, you know, at that time, because her daughter is uh school age she's dealing with the committee on special education for that um and just to touch upon what Eileen said before you know documenting is really really important in this process and i call that you know the 5 w's and 1 h you know you might have heard your teachers in in grammar school uh say that to you but it it's really it's really true and it remains um important here too. You know, who, what, when, where, why, and how often. You know, who was contacted, what was it about, what did you get the when did you get the letter, the phone call or the email? When did you send your letter? When did you make that phone call? When did you send that email to the school district? Where is the person from that you're dealing with? Is it an agency, a doctor's office, a school district? Um, why can't they provide you the services, or why? You know, what is the reason why they can't give you those services, and how often did you or they contact? Um, did you contact them, or did they contact you? And all of that is really important because those are the types of details that you want to be able to provide either at your next IEP meeting or later on down the road if you do in fact have to have some sort of mediation or impartial hearing. Uh, with the school district to get services for your child. So, um, you know, there are a number of different laws that require written notice, proper notice, um, and proof that you indeed were working and um, communicating with the school district all along uh, to make sure that, you know, you requested services on time and that you followed up and, um, you know, that services were provided to your child.
0: Okay. So, actually, I had a question or wanted to talk a little bit about what about children who are not in the public school system? Let's talk to parents about that and how uh, this, these laws uh, still cover them. Uh, so what, uh, is
1: there something you can mention in that regard? Right. So so there are a number of different obligations that school districts have to meet um, regarding the needs of students with disabilities and their parents, whether they attend public school or not. You know, there's some kids that will... That will attend private schools, some are in parochial schools, yeshivas, Catholic schools, some are in hospitals, Um, some are in boarding schools, therapeutic boarding schools. No matter what, all of those children, if they are on an IEP, if they are suspected to have a disability, they are covered under the law and are entitled to appropriate and equitable services under the law. Um, If you suspect that you know, if you have a child in private school or parochial school and you suspect that he or she may have a disability, it would be in your best interest to, you know, let the school know. Um, I recently had a case regarding this as well um, up in the Bronx, and um, the child went to a Catholic school up there. And in the Bronx, you know, they're within the jurisdiction of the New York City Department of Education. Um, I advised the client to contact the New York City Department of Education and ask them to evaluate and assess their student because they suspected a learning disability. It took some time for that to happen, but once it did and once it was discovered that um, he had a a learning disability that impacted his academics, um, they were then able to at least get the ball rolling on providing tutoring services to that child. Um, And the same thing happens, you know, in the suburbs. If you are attending you know, St. Mary's High School or a yeshiva in the suburbs um, and you suspect that your child has a learning disability, reach out and um, give a call to the uh, Committee on Special Education of the school district where you live as well as where the school is located and connect them, have your child tested, and come together with a plan that can be implemented in that private school. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's good
0: advice, and I think that's another um, piece of information parents tend not to realize that they have access to those services. So let's even talk if a you're bit more about – I'm oh, just going to I mean.
2: So what Jen is saying, even if you elect to have your student in a general ed program, you as the parents decide my whole family went to such and such private school and I want Johnny and Susie to continue in the family tradition – That does not obviate the school district's duty to provide educational services if your student is classified as a student with a disability. So that's important to know. You're selecting to pay for the private school, and you will continue to do that. But the supplemental special education services that are necessary is still under the obligation of the local educational agency, whether it's the Department of Education or a suburban school district.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's a that's an important takeaway for parents um in those situations. So let's talk about um other questions or maybe common questions that parents may have and and maybe also address things that you've found that parents could be apprehensive about, um which may prevent them from asking certain questions. Um Um, Go ahead. So I don't know, Eileen or Jen, who wants to start there?
1: Um, You know, I think every case is different. Um, I sometimes come across folks, uh, parents, who have now unilaterally placed their child in a private school and are seeking reimbursement from their public school district. And they'll ask me, you know, how often do I have to do this? And the answer is this. Just like each year, the school district has to provide an appropriate IEP or individualized education plan for your child, each year you may, you know, you have the opportunity to agree or challenge the IEP, in which case one of your remedies could be to sue the school district for, you know, private school tuition, um, additional services, uh, you know, a private program for reading services or, you know, therapies after school. And that can happen, that has to happen every year. So parents really need to prepare when they're making those choices um, to seek a private placement that, you know, this is something that needs to be reexamined and renewed annually. Another thing, just talking about apprehension,
2: Parents oftentimes are apprehensive about putting their student in a, quote, special education, end quote, school. They're worried, if I put my child in a special school, will they be able to go to college? Will they be able to get married? Will they ever be able to go to a regular college? And one thing I would say about that is, If your students' needs are going to be met appropriately in a special education school, worry about that for this year. Look at it step by step. I know it's challenging. You want to know if Johnny's going to be able to go to your alma mater or Villanova or wherever it was. But going to a school that can meet your child's needs, whether it be a non-public school, which is a private school that has a contractual arrangement with the public school system so that your child can go to that private school at the district's discretion, or a private school that you select uh, that has a special education program for your school, if that's what's most appropriate for your student now and you think that that will help your student make progress educationally, do what you have to do now. Many of these schools, most of these schools, their goal is to eventually mainstream your child if that's something that can be done. So don't be afraid of that. There are many students that have gone to special education schools that have gone on to mainstream and or vocational schools. And just because a school has a certain designation... Don't be afraid of that. That might be what's the most appropriate and what could really help meet your child's needs.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and expand on that too, because that's something I had found across my career and when I was working in the trenches, as I call it, I was working in EI and preschools, and that was a big question parents had about the quote unquote label. Um but I mean you said a really important word in you know, getting the appropriate services. And so that they can thrive and grow and be able to graduate high school and go to college and be productive citizens of the world. In order to do that, they need those appropriate services. So, if you, as hard as it could be for a parent, keeping them out of special education because you're afraid of a label is actually going to make it harder for them to graduate high school, go to college, and get that great degree and great job. We want them to thrive and get the educational services they need so they can. And I teach at Marymount Manhattan College. And just speaking to that fact, we have um, programs here for students who have learning disabilities. Uh, We have a program called Academic Access. And I teach in um, the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders. Uh, You'd think I'd be able to say that. Um, (laughs) And my students are... (laughs) My students and are studying to be a speech language pathologists and audiologists, and a lot of them. Um, it's not uncommon for my students to have had learning disabilities, um, and that's what they had had speech language therapy growing up. So that it makes it appealing for them. So, yes, um, it is scary that quote unquote label, but I think the the better chance for your children to thrive and do wonderfully and graduate and go to college and, and be productive in life is to get them those appropriate services, and even if it has that quote-unquote label.
2: So In so many instances, I, I think parents are looking to just do what's right by their child. And I sometimes tell parents, if Johnny or Susie can't be president of the United States one day, because he was classified as a student with a learning disability or classified as a student with autism when he was seven years old. And that's the only reason he can't be president, but otherwise all good. I think that that parent deserves a trophy. That parent did a great job, you know. There are also Mm -hmm. ways to get that label lifted if it no longer fits. We as a practice, Jen and I, have seen students with moderate autism diagnosis when they're young that eventually, with the appropriate services, lose that label. They lose that classification, and that classification is something that can entitle your student to services in a wonderful way for a number of years. And then eventually those students, there are some that actually lose that label and no longer need the services, and then they're no longer entitled to the services, but embracing that diagnosis and those classifications to get what's right for your student is surely the way to go and what we've seen.
0: Mhm. Okay. So, what other questions do parents um ask about?
2: Sometimes parents ask about do they need tuition money up front in order to get their student into a special education school when the school has failed to offer appropriate? The answer to that is sometimes yes and sometimes no. It depends upon the situation. We've had cases where Jen had a wonderful success recently where she sued the school district because the student was not getting appropriate services, but the mom was really without the means to pay for the private school. So Jen brought the demand for due process. We put on our case, and we these tuition reimbursement cases have three prongs, one of the prongs being that you have to prove that the school the parent selects is appropriate. The best-case scenario is that the student is in that school making progress by the time you go to hearing, but in this case, because the mom didn't have the means to pay for the school, Jen did it, based upon what services the school could provide if the student was there and she was able to win that particular school for that student without the mom having to front the tuition money. So sometimes the parents may have to front some tuition money and they could work that out with the school. And sometimes if the parent really can't afford it, we can sue for the school before the student ever takes a foot a, a step into that school, so I think oftentimes parents are also concerned about finances, and that's certainly
0: understandable right right and what about knowing when to when to contact a lawyer? Is that a question you often get, and what can you tell parents about that?
2: We try to be very accessible to parents. We will speak to a parent and look at an i e p or two or an evaluation or two in an effort to help the parent access some knowledge, some legal expertise, and also introduce them to some appropriate schools. Jen has vast knowledge of many of the schools in the city, and we've also dealt with many wonderful evaluators, developmental pediatricians, neuropsychologists. So really, we feel the earlier you access an attorney, the better, because we can help guide you in this path. We don't make that first phone call or two or that consultation something that you have to pay for. At least up until this point, we've been able to provide that service to families so that we can send you on the right path. You could have the best neuropsychologist in the country, but if they're not willing to write a report for you, if they're not willing to testify for you if necessary, the money that you spend on that evaluation on that evaluation is going to be wasted. So we do try to open ourselves to a phone call or a consultation with parents so we can help guide them in that direction, in the right direction.
0: Right, right. Um, Jen, is there
1: are there other questions that you found that you might be able to talk about? Um, I think one question is, you know will this school or will this set of services will that cure my son or daughter and you know the answer to that is it's not a panacea you know this is this is a process and um i often counsel my my parents to take it really you know one day at a time one month at a time one year at a time and look for progress where progress is being made and you know if there if there are things that pop up that you have concerns about absolutely give us a call, give the teachers a call, call a meeting at the school and find out, you know, earlier on uh, or meet with them earlier on to see if you can tweak or modify what's going on in the school so that, you know, that will better be able to help your son or daughter. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um. Now, um, we talked a little bit earlier about... Um, Children having to reach a bar, a um, degree of disability or disorder, and able to get the free services. Um, so, um, is there anything else to add about that? Because um, sometimes um, they may qualify for services, but there are no service providers available. Or they may not reach that bar, but they may, according to the clinician, feel that they still would benefit. Um, And it would be appropriate for them to have these habilitative or therapeutic services. Are there things that we could add regarding those two uh, questions? It's
2: my opinion that if you have a student that can be classified or is classified under one of the 13 classifications that are provided under the IDEA and your student is struggling bar or no bear, bar I'm going to fight for your student to get those services if if you're classified with this with a disability and there's a problem going on in school that's a problem you're entitled to services that's why the law is there so there are some situations where we've had students who are 6 years old and they have a lisp and the and you'll you'll know this better than me Dr. T Oftentimes they'll say that a six year old with a lisp isn't entitled to services. You have to wait until the student is eight. That's sometimes what the evaluators through the Department of Education or some of these public schools will say and My answer to that is if the lisp was in a vacuum, if the student couldn't couldn't hear her him or herself, if the other students in the class couldn't hear that student then perhaps we could wait until the student was eight to try to uh, affect change on a speech impediment or a lisp. But if I have a four-year-old, a five-year-old that has a lisp or a speech impediment, that needs to be addressed as soon as possible because that student is not going to be willing to partake in conversations at school. It's going to affect their self-esteem. It's going to affect their interaction in their classes. So although there are sometimes these hard and fast rules with relation to when your child can access services, I don't think that those uh, incidences of, of a specific pathology, for example, a speech impediment. I don't think that occurs in a vacuum. And if your child is classified as a student with a disability and it's affecting them in their school, I bet there's an argument around that bar.
0: Yeah, and I think what's, what's nice about the argument you're um, suggesting there is the impact that that speech impediment could have on a child's social-emotional learning. Um, and their social emotional development, and that is going to impact greatly how they're able to learn and function in in those academic arenas. It's it's so key to everything. We we did dip, ha, we did a panel on the show here uh, a couple weeks ago on social emotional learning, and um, it's really big. And I think um, that might be where a parent could have to go to an outside evaluator to get a more thorough um, evaluation, or maybe um, someone who can. Present the argument um in a better way than maybe the internal um speech um let's say in this case it was a speech issue the internal speech pathologist for the board of ed who um who might not be able to do that would you would you say that 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 might be the time to do to seek outside um private evaluations absolutely so often I've heard gen counseling
2: families and telling them that these academic educational challenges uh, to students when they're young, if they're not addressed effectively, appropriately, and early, they turn into anxiety and then can create, in addition to the learning disability, they're creating anxiety and emotional disabilities. Uh, Jen, I don't know if you want to add something about that.
1: Right, right. And, you know, that those are areas that um, school districts and schools you know, are, are required to assess in. You know, when you look at the individual the individual education plan um, or the IEP, they have areas um, in that document that you're supposed to report on, you know, academics, uh, the present levels of performance of a child academically, socially, emotionally, physically. You know, all of that is a component, in my opinion, of a child's development in school. And so one can't exist without the other, and, you know, it's true. I I have noticed, um, you know, both from my teaching days and also, you know, as in my lawyer days, that if those academic um, struggles aren't addressed appropriately earlier on, um, it will take a hit on a child's child's self-esteem and social and emotional development. Mhm yeah and and that's huge, and that's that's where learning
0: happens in that good mm-hmm, social mm-hmm. emotional learning environment um with those good skills so um it could be the speech language pathologist writes a brilliant report, but you need um the professional who understands maybe social um interactions and emotional states of being like that psychologist to provide um a stronger argument as to why they should be having that speech language therapy
1: to to remediate that trouble.
2: Sure. And, trouble and a style. a
1: lot, right? And a lot of the disciplines will overlap. You know, and and working together. Yeah. That's why it's so important to have that team and to really develop and cultivate that team of experts for your kid that who understands him or her and their needs and you know, creates a map or a plan for um reaching their goals. So, no. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and you you'd mentioned
0: earlier, you know, building your team that it really is a team effort and um Eileen, I think you had said about things not happening in a vacuum. Um and things don't happen in a vacuum. Everything interacts. That's why on this program we look at those five areas of human development because they all influence each other. So, I think that's an important thing to consider as well. Um that um looking at all the different parts, looking at your child holistically and in a functional context. Um, how are they going to be functioning in the real world, in class, at home with you, out in the community, with friends, et cetera. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I want to talk about actually your law firm and what you provide. Uh, but before we do that, um, I know there are there are other kinds of services. So there are private law firms, but um, especially in a big city, we have well, really anywhere, I would think, you have families who don't have the financial means. And I know here in New York, um, there are, um, and of course now the names are escaping me, of um, <laughs> advocacy groups for, for children um, whose parents don't have means to seek private. Um, is there a few that you can name or anything you can say on that um, level?
1: Sure. So, you know, part of our... our practice at Lewis Joe's is we represent a, a number of, of families of means and um, those who don't have, um, you know, those who don't have means as well. And, you know, there's a number of different ways that we can structure cases here to help families of all different sorts of means. Um, you know, we started this education practice group at Lewis Joe's about five years ago, and we're celebrating our five-year anniversary this week. Um, We're really proud of the work and and the amount of families that we have been able to counsel and and represent and help along the way. Um, You know, there are nonprofits in in this city. Some of them, um, I actually interned for Advocates for Children. That was part of my training um, in law school, and that was one of my first introductions to uh, the world of special education law. Um, And there are a number of different uh, services that they offer as well. You know, depending on the type of case that uh, could come across, you know, depending on the type of phone call that we could get or or case that comes across our desk, we would be able to, you know, provide that um, assessment to the family as well as, um, you know, sit down and and talk to them about the types of services they would be entitled to. Um, In New York, there is... uh, there are different types of remedies that you can ask for and um, our law firms, you know, our law practice group services range from consultations to educational planning, school searches, counseling, representation, and partial hearings for different types of remedies like compensatory education. For example, if you feel that um, your student has been in public school and is not doing well and has been deprived of an appropriate education, uh, they may be entitled to a bank of hours that compensate them for, uh, for their education from years past. Um, we also do funding for tuition reimbursement cases, and sometimes they're known as the Burlington-Carter cases, and sometimes they're known as Connors cases. Uh, Burlington-Carter is uh, one of the seminal, two of the seminal Supreme Court cases uh, that talk about tuition reimbursement. And typically, uh, in New York City, those are for parents that uh, pay out of pocket and re- and seek tuition reimbursement. For those folks that may not be able to pay out of pocket directly, they may qualify for Connors funding. And um, you know that would be something that they would need to speak to their school about, definitely speak to a lawyer about, and uh, come up with a-, a way or a method to um, bring a case against the Department of Education for that kind of funding. Um, we would also uh, other services that we provide are, you know, school discipline hearings or obtaining funding for independent educational evaluations. Uh, we counsel parents through uh, different processes: EI, preschool, CPSC, turning five meetings, and other IEP meetings as their as their child grows. Uh, we help with transitional plannings, uh, transitional plannings, and you know, something to note also is Lewis Joe's is a full-service law firm, so uh, we work with families on a variety of other issues, um, including, you know, things like their real estate closings, um, things like, uh, you know, special needs trusts and, um, you know, Medicaid planning and things of that nature that might be um, other issues outside of special education but still impacting families redressing their needs
0: across the lifespan uh is exactly what I'm so that's yeah that's nice. And what I have on the on the site on the blog talk radio site for the show, I have the link to your your firm so people could always um access your website there and I know there's a contact page um with um contact information. Is there anything else that they should know or any specific Uh, number they should call or they can find that on the contact page or what do you suggest they can email either
2: jennifer or myself our emails are on the website they could always call our new york city office which is two one two two three three seven one nine five i think one thing that makes our firm unique the education practice as well as the other practice areas we are a very practical bunch We are not going to tell you to write a letter if a phone call would be sufficient. We're not going to tell you to sue if we could work it out through a negotiation. I think we try to treat our clients as we would treat a family member in giving the best, most practical advice in an efficient manner to get what you need, but without creating a federal case about it. So... I think that's one of the strengths across the board. I've been with Lewis Joe's for over 20 years, and I think much of our success is as a result of our straightforward manner and the way that we really try to treat our clients as we would want to be treated. You know, you might it might not be pretty. We're going to tell you the truth, whether you have a chance for success, whether you don't, the strengths, the weaknesses. We're going to give it to you straight. We're not going to string it along. We have plenty of work to do. We're not going to try to take advantage of a case to make a case where there's none.
0: Okay. That sounds good. And um, I met you both. Actually, we had had, um, I used to do, uh, and still do, I guess, parent trainings here at Marymount Manhattan. And we had had a parent advocate come talk. And, Jen, that's where I met you initially. And then I met you and Eileen. You had had another um, kind of open house um, or a networking event. And then we started having conversations. And, and um, you visited our facility here at Marymount Manhattan in the speech pathology program. And we had some really, really great conversations. And I was just so encouraged by... Um, all the information we were sharing, all the areas where we thought we could be helpful to the community. And I'm hoping that this is just the first of other talks that we can have to bring more information to families. So um, I want to thank you for your time and expertise, and I'm so glad that we did meet as we did because um, I think it's been good. I think it's been good. Thank you so thank much, you. Dr. T.
1: Thank you, Sure, You're welcome.
0: You got it. So as we wrap up the show, um, I always like to end with our guest's five fantastic facts for families. And so that is, what's your favorite advice for families on the topic of the day? Um, So I know you've been thinking about this, so I don't know who wants to start with um, your five favorite facts.
1: Sure, I'll start. You know, I think first and foremost is you need to know that you're not alone. There are resources and supports, professionals that are dedicated to help guide you along this path and through this process. And, you know, number two, you and your child are protected under the law, whether it's through the early intervention or the CPSC or the CSE process. Under the IDEA, again, all those acronyms, you and your child are entitled to certain protections and standards under the law, Under the law, and, you know, don't be afraid to read up on that and don't be afraid to access that. Um, I think thirdly is, you know, build your team. Cultivate those experts, those doctors, evaluators, advocates, lawyers, teachers, therapists, providers, agencies, anyone who is going to know your son or daughter. Um, they will help you build your child's portfolio. They'll help you assess. And plan to um, plan for current and future educational and medical needs, um, I think fourth is you know technology can be a gift. Um, have your child assessed in all areas of suspected disabilities. This includes an assistive technology evaluation which oftentimes can be overlooked. Um, I find them extremely useful for students, and they can help determine uh, you know different technologies, apps, uh, educational toys, computer games, communication devices that can help you and it can assist your child. Um, And I think last but not least is, you know, stay in the moment.
2: I think uh, when we talk about staying in the moment, it's so worrisome when you have children to plan out what the next steps are. And, of course, we always have an eye towards future and you're planning for what's going to happen next, but if you could work on planning for the next school year and limit it to that, take it one step at a time. You don't know what your child's educational uh, accomplishments will be. If they're six years old, let's plan for six. Let's plan for first grade. We were talking earlier about that special education school or that special education label. Try not to worry about that so much. Stay in the moment. Let's get your child what they need now to progress, and we'll have an eye towards the future, but let's not worry about where they're going to be five years from now. There will be time for that.
0: Yeah, I I think that's all very great sage advice. And again, this is Eileen Laboudi and Jennifer Francola from Lewis Joes here in New York City, um, education attorneys. Um, This has been wonderful. I want to thank you both again. As I had mentioned earlier, people can contact you through the links that we have on our site at Blog Talk Radio. I'm going to be posting all of this on the kidsAtoZ.com regular standalone website too. And um I want to thank our audience also for listening and invite them as always please email us with questions or suggestions or any feedback. We would really truly love to hear from you. And you can send that information to info at kids A to Z dot com. That's info at kidsA Z dot com. We also encourage you to follow us on Facebook and um so there'll be Kids A to Z with Doctor T on Facebook. You can follow me also on Twitter and that's um I think that's Teresa Signorelli at Dr. Teresa. And we also encourage you to follow us on the Blog Talk Radio website so you can be informed of when we have new shows. And I guess that's it for today's show. Again, thank you everybody for listening. Hope you have a really great day.